It's good to be with you this morning, and it really is an honor to open God's Word with you. I'm going to have you turn to a passage of Scripture uh, while I'm giving the introduction, because it may take you a while to get there. It's in Lamentations, and if you're wondering where that is, go to the center of your Bible, to uh, Psalms, and then go over six books after that to Lamentations to the right. And while you're looking that up, I just want to share something with you that I was reading to, uh, this past week. Uh, it really didn't have anything to do with the preparation for this message, but it was in a, a uh, book, a little book called, How Can It Be All Right When Everything Is All Wrong? It's written by a pastor and a seminary professor named Lewis Smeeds. Uh, this is a true story of something that happened in his own life, so let me share this with you. I walked away from Cal's hospital bed, opened the door, and stopped for a moment to look back before I left him. He lifted his head a bit, smiled, and said, It's all right. And then I left him and never saw him again. But his words have haunted me ever since and have become for me a metaphor of life's deepest question. How can anyone really believe that it's all right when everything is hopelessly wrong? When I heard that my best friend was dying of cancer, I flew to Michigan from Los Angeles to spend a few days with him while he still had the strength to talk. Cal and I had been friends since we first met on the first day of the first year of college. I knew this would be the last time we would talk on earth. After 30 years of a friendship, that has never been replaced. We spent four days talking together about our past and about his future as only deeply good friends can talk. And then I had to leave. Three days later, he would be dead. But as I looked over my shoulder to be in touch with his eyes for one last living moment, he left me the haunting heritage of those commonplace words, it's all right. When I left his room and walked toward the elevator, his wife Joan grabbed me and cried, Lou, I'm scared. And I knew that it was not all right. It was all wrong. It was all wrong for his wife. It was all wrong for his four children. It was all wrong for his friends. As I rode down the elevator toward the hospital lobby, I cried my pitiful complaints to God that it was all wrong for me. By the time I got to my car, I knew that I was going to be put through the ringer of this terrible question for a long time to come. How can we be ground down in pain and grief and death and still believe that it's all right at the center of life. Have you ever noticed how commonplace things come alive as uncommon truth when they come at just the right time? Because it can be a trite comfort to hear it's all right. A boy strikes out in a little league game, and his coach says, it's all right. A guest spills coffee on a clean tablecloth, and the hostess says, it's all right. A baby cries in the night, and the mother comforts that child by saying, it's all right. Clichés of reassurance about things a lot less than life or death. But now my friend was not talking about spilled coffee or a missed pitch. He was talking about life at its depths. In this setting, the commonplace becomes either profound self-deception or uncommon truth. That really hits home, and I think that as we go through this passage in Lamentations 3 today, uh, you'll find some comfort in the words that the prophet shares. 
But as I was reflecting this week on something that had happened 30 years ago, December of 1988, in the country of Armenia, uh, I found some commonplace things. This country is susceptible to massive earthquakes, and on December of 1988, there was a 6.8 magnitude earthquake. Before that happened, in the morning, a family was gathered together, getting ready to send their elementary son to school. And as they often did, the father and the mother uh, said goodbye to him, and the father knelt down before his son and said, I hope you have a good day, and I want you to always remember that I will always be there for you. And then he hugged his son, and his son went off to school. A few hours later, this massive earthquake struck, and uh, the parents, obviously worried, were listening to the radio only to hear that thousands had been killed in this earthquake. So the father did the only thing he knew to do. He grabbed his jacket, and he went down to where the school used to stand and to the room where his son used to go to class, and he began to pull pieces of debris off that pile of rubble. First a piece of timber, he set it aside, and then a piece of concrete and set it aside. And another parent came over and grabbed his arm and said, what are you doing? You're just making this more unstable. But he pushed him aside and he continued to pull pieces off of this pile. He continued on and the other parents left. He continued to work through the night and into the next morning. And as parents came the next morning to place either a picture or flowers uh, where their children had last been seen, he continued to work. And as he pulled more pieces off, he heard a faint cry, Help! He listened, he didn't hear anything else, so he continued his work. And then he heard the words, Papa! And so then he began to furiously pull things off the pile, and soon he saw his son through this hole. And he called for him to come out, but he said, No, let the other kids come first, because I know that you'll come for me. So after 14 children had come through that alive, the little boy came to and hugged his father and he said, I knew that you would always be there for me. Now just, uh, we see that example, that's just a small thing uh, with an earthly father being faithful and pulling debris from a pile. But don't we have greater things in our lives than even that? Sometimes they're physical, many times they're not. They're emotional or they're deeply spiritual things. And we have a heavenly father who is even more faithful than the one I just told you about. We are never cut off from God's faithfulness because he is true to his character and he is reliable and trustworthy and can always be counted on. Here's a simple definition. God's faithfulness means that everything he says and does is certain because God is 100% reliable 100% of the time. He does not fail, forget, falter, change or disappoint. So let's look at this passage here in Lamentations chapter 3. Throughout the morning, I'll be referring back to the earlier parts of the chapter, but we're going to start reading at verse 19. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible. Lamentations chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. This is from the English Standard Version. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood, or another way to say that is bitterness and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. 
But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. God's faithfulness is not some secondary or minor characteristic of his character. To say that God's faith is God is faithful is to go to the very core of who he really is. You see, if he didn't keep his word, he wouldn't be God. God's faithfulness means that each one of his attributes in his character is working at full capacity and at all times. When does God's love ever fail? That's not rhetorical. When does God's love ever fail? Never, right? Why? Because he is faithful. When is God less than holy? Never. He is never because his character is pure and he is always faithful to those uh, to those uh, who seek him. A.W. Tozer puts it this way. All of God's acts are consistent with all of his attributes. No attribute contributes, uh, contradicts any other, but all harmonize and blend into each other in the infinite abyss of the Godhead. God's faithfulness is at the very core of his nature. Let me just go through some of those characteristics with you. God is knowable. That means that we can know the very creator of the universe. He is holy. That means that he is without sin, whether in deed or in thought. God is the creator. He made everything, seen and unseen. God is omnipotent. That means that he is all-powerful. He is omniscient. He knows everything. He is omnipresent. omnipresent. That means that he is everywhere all the time. He is just. That means he always does the right thing. He is sovereign. That means he's the supreme power. God is unchanging and he is loving because he is faithful to his own character and he is faithful to his own attributes. In our passage in Lamentations, this is written, the human author, we know that the real author is God, but the man who wrote the words on the page is the prophet Jeremiah. He's also known as the weeping prophet. And when he's writing this, he's bearing his heart, and he's not holding back the depths of his despair. I don't think there's any other prophet who ever pleaded with his people in a more impassioned manner. And aside from Jesus Christ, I'm pretty sure that there was no one who was ever treated with more contempt than he was by the people he was trying to reach. In those first 20 verses, the weeping prophet puts it all out there. So let me summarize the nine complaints that he has. The first is, he says, God is angry. Now, why would God be angry? In uh, verse 1, it says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. God was angry because his people were continuing in sin and not repenting. They didn't care. They just continued to do this, and so God is angry. The next complaint is, Jeremiah says that he's in the dark. Instead of seeing things clearly, he feels the loneliness of darkness. 
In verse 2 it says, He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. The third complaint is, he says he feels like God is against him. In verse 3 it says, Because of God's judgment, uh, Jeremiah felt like that God had turned his hand against him again and again the whole day long. And again in verses 12 and 13, there's this very graphic word picture where Jeremiah says that God bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. The next complaint that he talks about is he feels tormented mentally and physically. Jeremiah feels his pain intensely, and he can't find any uh, remedy for that. In verse 4 he says, God has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. And then again, down in verses 15 and 16, he says that his teeth feels like he's chewing on gravel and that it's grounding his teeth into dust. The next complaint is that he can't find any release. He can't figure out how to escape the pain that he is enduring and the anguish that he feels. In verse 7, it says, He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains very heavy. And in verse 5 he says that he is besieged and enveloped with bitterness and tribulation. The next complaint he says is that he feels that his prayers are going unanswered. In verse 8 he says, though I call and cry for help, God shuts out my prayer. The next thing he complains about is that people are making fun of him. You see that in verse 14. He says, I became the laughingstock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all the day long. Now they weren't laughing at him because he was awkward or clumsy. They were laughing at him because he was bringing God's message and they didn't want to hear it. The next complaint is, he says he's ready to give up. After all that he'd been through, he just wants to throw in the towel and quit. We see this honest cry of despair in verse 17 when he writes, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. The next thing he complains about, he says his hope is gone. In verse 18, he says, My endurance has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Now, as much as he tries to minimize his problems, he can't help but think about the affliction and his wandering and the bitterness that floods his life in verse 19. And when he remembers all that he's gone through, he understandably gets very down. And in verse 20, he says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Now, the prophet Jeremiah has gone through so much. We've just read all of the complaints that he has. But I don't think he's alone in this. If I were to ask you and you were to answer honestly, have you ever felt any of these complaints? Are you feeling them now? I think almost every hand would go up. Do you experience some of these things and wonder if God is really faithful? Do you feel like God is mad at you? Maybe it's because you continue to do things that you think would anger God, and you think, how could he be anything but mad at me? Do you ever feel like you're in the dark? You've heard people say, God has a plan for your life, but you can't figure out what it is. You feel like God is against you. You know, all of these things keep happening. That means God must be against me. You have mental pain or physical pain. 
Maybe you've received a diagnosis from a counselor or from a doctor, and you're going through that. You can't find release. No matter how much you try, you can't find any release from this. How about this one? Do you ever feel like your prayers aren't being answered? You've prayed the same thing and cried out to God for relief from something over and over again, and you just feel like God is not answering. You ever feel like people don't understand you? You tell them what you're going through, and they just kind of give you some trite saying and say everything will be okay? You ever feel like you're ready to give up or that your hope is gone? Well, while it's okay to feel those things like Jeremiah did, and it's okay to express those things to God, again, like Jeremiah did, it's not okay to stay there. Jeremiah had every reason to turn his back on God, but he didn't. He forced himself to think about God's character, and in particular, to grab on to God's faithfulness. Did you catch that? He forced himself to think about God's character. Some of you may think that you can't help what you're feeling. Pastor Scott, this is how I feel. Are you asking me to deny how I feel? I don't mean for this to sound harsh, but you don't have to allow what you've gone through to keep you emotionally entangled and spiritually sidetracked forever. So let's look at what Jeremiah grabbed onto when his world was falling apart. In verse 21, this is the hinge, not just of this passage, this is the hinge of the entire book of Jeremiah, or of Lamentations. Uh, and he says in there, in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So while his outward affliction and his inward turmoil pushed him towards despair, Jeremiah is forcing himself to bring to truth all of those things that he knows about God's character. Bring those to the front of my mind. Here's how it worked. If Jeremiah just focused on what he was feeling and his emotions, he would be drowned in sorrow. Let's look again at verses 19 and 20. I remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the bitterness and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. In order to break out of that pattern and that cycle of despair, Jeremiah needed to be vigilant about what he allowed himself to think about. He needed to bring other things to the front of his mind. He made himself think about what was true in verse 21, but this I call to mind. What Jeremiah did was something that we need to do as well. We need to purposefully and deliberately focus on things that are other than our problems. Now that's where we usually end up. Things start going bad and that's all we think about. And then it starts to just crowd everything else out. But what he did and what we need to do is to focus on something other than our problems. Force yourself to remember a truth. Remember the things that God has done for you. Look back in the Bible and read about how he has always taken care of his people. Here's something else that you should do. Recall a verse. Now, I'm going to go off on a little rabbit trail. Any of you that know me uh, at all know that uh, Bible memorization is something that I'm passionate about. And I don't know how you're going to recall a verse if you haven't put it there first. So take some time. I mean, we all probably, if I asked every one of you, is, is memorizing Scripture important? You would all say yes. 
If I asked you again, how many of you have actively over the past seven days tried to memorize a new verse or uh, reviewed the verses that you know? A lot fewer hands would go up. I know, I know, I've been there. I've tried ever since I've been a Christian when I was seven years old to memorize Scripture. And I would succeed for a while and then fail for a while. Uh, but I have found some things that have helped, and I've had a lot of success with that over the past few years. And it has made a difference because God can bring to mind the things that I have placed in my heart from His Word. And if you want to talk to me about that afterwards, uh, maybe to find out what some of those uh, things are, please feel free to talk to me afterwards. It's also important to remember a time when God demonstrated His grace and mercy to you. I remember uh, when our kids were much younger, uh, I had experienced at one point uh, I was out of work and funds were low. I was at the grocery store to buy some food for us. Uh, I think at that time what we could afford was store brand macaroni and cheese, maybe without the cheese. Uh, but I was standing in line. The, the store had just gone through a big remodel. They were kind of celebrating. I'm standing in line getting ready to write the check. That's what we used to do to pay for food as we wrote checks. There are these little pieces of paper. You, know, you don't stick them in a machine or anything. Uh, and as uh, I was standing there, they announced over the speakers, when we call one of the lanes that you're standing at, if we call your number, you're going to win a free bag of groceries. They called my number. So then when I'm getting ready to leave, I'm about to pick up my, my, the one I paid for and the one I won for free. They called my number again. Our kids love to hear that story because it told them God was looking out for us at a time that when, when we needed some help. God was good to us. Remember a time when God demonstrated his grace and mercy to you. Push God's faithfulness to the front of your mind even when you don't feel like doing it. When you do, God will begin to restore hope to your life. So the question is, okay, we know that Jeremiah called things to mind. What was he calling to mind? What did he focus on when he was hurting? So let's look at verses 22 and 23, and we're going to find four uh, phrases there, and each one raises and answers an important question that we need to consider. So the first question is, why doesn't God destroy me? And that's not just a, a question in theory, because I think all of us, most of the time we don't realize that there's a very thin line between uh, life and death and between uh, disaster and prosperity that we're not even aware of. So why doesn't God destroy me? And here is Jeremiah's answer. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He doesn't destroy me because he loves me. Why doesn't he destroy us? He could, right? I mean, we just talked about his, um, uh, his all-powerful being. He could destroy us. He should destroy us because we're sinners, right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he doesn't because of his great love for us. And the word that's used for love here in the original language, the Hebrew, is hesed. It's a word that's rich with meaning. It, it has within it the idea of a faithful and loyal love. It's a love that doesn't love because it feels all gushy and mushy emotionally. 
It is a love that is thought about and decided upon and um, is an act of the will. God was sticking by the people he had chosen. God loves us because he promised to love us, and nothing can cause him to break that promise. Here's the second question. How do I know God will keep on loving me? The second half of that verse, verse 22, answers that question. Because his mercies never come to an end. I want you to notice that that word mercies is plural. We don't normally use that in the English language, do we? We don't normally say mercies. We say mercy. But this, I think, is emphasizing uh, God's compassion, uh, his intense and limitless compassion towards us. And that Hebrew word is the word that is translated womb. And so that makes you think of a mother with a newborn child, a child that she'd never seen before, had never held before, and yet when it's put in her arms for the very first time, there is that intense and uh, indescribable love that cannot be broken. It literally means to be moved in the heart out of a love for another. That means that God is moved in his heart when he thinks about you. Now that's not just you in general, like this this whole congregation, God loves you. That means each one of you individually. When God thinks about you, he is moved in his heart for you. The third question is, when will God give me what I need? Am I going to have to wait a long time for this? Verse 23 says, they are new every morning. I would give you an example. What if you uh, woke up every day for the rest of your life, and when you woke up, you looked in your purse or your wallet, and it was stuffed full of $100 bills? And then you went into the kitchen and you opened the refrigerator and there was food just flowing out of it, every one of your favorite foods. And then you went out to get in your car and the gas tank was topped off every morning when you got out there. And when you got up out of bed, those aches and pains in your knees and your back, uh, maybe the, um, uh, the, the cancer that you had been told that you had, uh, the tiredness that you feel, all of that has been removed every morning when you wake up. All of these things have happened. That's the way it is with God's compassion and His mercies. You can never use them up. You remember the story of when God provided manna for the children of Israel? This is after they've been delivered from slavery of 400 years in, the, in Egypt, but they're on their way. They have not reached the promised land yet. There's millions of people, and they're in the middle of the desert, and they need food every day. And God says, I will provide for you. I'm going to put this stuff uh, like the morning dew every morning on the ground, these little flakes, and they're going to be delicious. They're going to be highly nutritious. Uh, but they had never seen anything like this before. And so they were told to get a basket or a, a pail or a satchel and to go out and collect this every morning. And you know what they said when they looked down and saw this for the first time? The word manna actually means, what is it? They look down at this and they say, what is this? And God said, that's what I'm providing for you every day. Now they were told, gather as much as you can eat for you and your whole family for the entire day. 
but don't try to get enough for tomorrow or the day after, because if you do, it's going to spoil and it's going to be full of maggots. What was God teaching his people? I will provide for you every day what you need. But don't try to do this on your own. Don't think, well, what if God forgets tomorrow? Or what if he runs out of manna? Or what if I don't feel like getting up tomorrow morning? I'm, I'm going to gather enough for three days. God said, no, every morning I'm going to provide for you. His mercies are new every morning. Let's learn this lesson. God's mercies come day by day. They come when we need them, not earlier and not later. And God needs uh, gives us what we need today. If we needed more, he would give us more. Nothing we truly need will ever be withheld from us. The fourth thing is, what is my hope for living? The fourth question, what is my hope for living? And that question is answered in the end of verse 23. Great is your faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. Whatever hard things we go through, we must never doubt that God is faithful. Let's celebrate his faithfulness every day. Now, before we wrap up this morning, I want to give you three practical ways that as a Christ follower, you can experience God's faithfulness in your life. So here's the first question, or the first thing. When you struggle, because we all are going to struggle. We are sinful people living in a fallen world, and there are going to be times of testing, times of trial, times when our health fails us, times when our bank account is too small. Uh, maybe we're going to go through uh, some extreme grief, uh, maybe even to the point of despair and depression. Friends, do what Jeremiah did when your mind is flooded with difficulties. Choose to focus on God's love and his mercy and his faithfulness. He does not promise to prevent those problems. He does promise that he will never leave us and that he will walk through those with us. And you can do that right now. You can call to mind what you know to be true, that God is faithful and he will always be there for you. The second thing, what about when you're tempted? Because we live in a fallen world, we are going to be tempted. It may be our own sinful desires. It may be something of the world. It may be directly from Satan's hand. But we will face temptations on a daily basis. Did you know that God, because he is faithful, he will always provide a way out for you so that you don't have to give in to them? Remember I talked about the importance of Scripture memory and having those things in, hidden in your heart? I want you to write this down. To reach forward and take the pen out of the, the pew in front of you. Write this down on your bulletin. If you didn't pick up a bulletin, I want you to write it on your hand. I should see more people leaning forward to get a pen. 1 Corinthians 10.13. I want you this week to work on committing that to memory. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you will be able to endure it. Why can we endure? Because God is faithful. He knows how much you can withstand, and he will never allow more temptation to come into your life than you can endure. What tempts you? What's your fatal flaw? What, are you, what ways are you drawn to do something that you know isn't right? 
Remember this, God's faithfulness will always give you a way out. You don't have to give in. He knows exactly what the limits are, what you can bear. God's faithfulness is directly tied to providing us a way to say no to sin. Now, I want you to get this next thing that I'm going to say. When we give in to sin, it's because our focus is on the attractiveness of the temptation rather than on God's faithfulness to deliver us from that situation. Let me say that again. When we give in to sin, it's because our focus is on the attractiveness of the temptation rather than on God's faithfulness to deliver us from that situation. What do you choose to focus on? Are you going to focus on the attractiveness of that thing that's right in front of you? Or are you going to focus on what you know to be true? That God is faithful and he will deliver you. The third thing is, because we live in a fallen world, because we are still sinners, there will be times when we fail, when we give in to sin. And so what do you do when that happens? Would you be ashamed for the people sitting around you this morning to know the things that you have thought and entertained over the last seven days? Things that you thought nobody else knew about? All of us would be. I'm going to ask you to do this. Keep short accounts with God. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To say that God is faithful is to say that God is committed to you. He is steadfastly devoted to you and is looking to pull you out from under the mess of your life. So when you struggle, choose to focus on God's love and mercy and faithfulness. When you're tempted, God's faithfulness will give you a way out, 1 Corinthians 10.13. And when you fail, keep short accounts with God, 1 John 1.9. Now you recall, as I went into this, this part here with these three things, I said, if you are a Christ follower... If you have not yet made that choice to follow Christ, none of that's going to work for you. If you're still trying to live your life on your own terms, what you need to know is what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4. He said, And so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there be no going along with the crowd, the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't even think straight anymore. Instead, admit to God that you're powerless to reconcile yourself to Him. Confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And then this will be true, that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come.